Right, welcome back to the podcast, Steven Sully Study. It's been a, a little while now since I've done a Zoom podcast and I'm really excited to introduce Mr. Lewis Raymond Taylor. Um, I believe you're residing and you're talking to me from the sunny place of Bali in Indonesia. Is that right? That is correct. Yep. I've been here for the last four years, living out of two suitcases, living that digital nomad lifestyle. Yeah. So... Um, you're uh, you're soaking up the sun whilst us Brits are uh, inches below uh, uh, you know, oh, yes. in the swamps in snow at the moment. But I, I guess if it's going to snow, this is the perfect time of year ready for Christmas. Yeah, it's quite nice, actually, to be fair. I haven't seen the snow in probably about 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, listen, you're not missing much, mate, because uh, it's a bit of a, well, certainly where I live, uh, your cars cannot get up the, the cul-de-sac. They're, they're slipping everywhere. All oh, right. Right. So I'm going to uh, start by saying this. I, I read an article. Uh, it was only a, uh, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, November the 1st, 2022, from the Daily Star. Probably not the best paper, mm-hmm. uh, but this is what they said. Yeah. Convict right. criminal turns his life around to become owner yeah. of a twenty-two million pound life coach business. Um, mm-hmm. I've got written down here. You've got the the coaching masters. Tell me a bit more about that headline from the Daily Star. What does that mean? Well, we built the business organically, so we did it with no funding. We did it with no investment, not even any personal money. We literally just launched a product, which was a digital course. Um, on a Facebook Live, we made 17 grand. We then reinvested that, hired some staff, and started building out these suites of products. Uh, since then, we've evolved into crazy things like app development. So we have our own app. We have virtual reality. So it's actually an app on the Oculus headset. So you can actually see a digital avatar of me delivering coach training. But we help people build freedom-based online coaching businesses. So we qualify you as a coach. We have the credentials to actually qualify you. Then we help you build the business. And we do that through our range of courses. And it was only when we went for our first funding round that we actually got our business valued by an independent uh, valuation person. And they sent a 46-page report through of all the, you know, value ways to value companies and the speed of growth and the fact that we were growing organically 100% year on year and all this sort of stuff. And uh, we came at a $25 million valuation. Um, and we were going for a crowdfund at the time um, with some uh, some big names. Um, that is a, it's a, it's a long story, but we actually ended up going solo with our funding round in the end. There's two big crowdfunds uh, platforms. One's Crowdcube, one's Cedars. Won't go into the details for legal reasons, but uh, we got led down the garden path a little bit and last minute, uh, it wasn't favorable for us to continue that relationship. It's usually for startups, people looking for crowdfunding. And we were actually a lot more developed and we were giving away a lot more uh, control of the business that we wanted to. Anyway, due to this being um, public knowledge and public domain promoting it, it got picked up by the papers. And uh, yeah, because of my story, my background of being in prison multiple times and all sorts of stuff, it hit the papers. And I think I was in 36 articles in 30 days across the world. Amazing, amazing stuff. So how does someone uh, with your story go from being in jail three times? I mean, I, you know, everywhere you look from your bio to lo- different publications, they say they love to play on this whole multi-convicted yeah. criminal kind of profile. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did you go from like a criminal to a multimillionaire? Yeah. I was just one of the lads, right? I wasn't a career criminal. I wasn't going out fucking robbing jewelry stores or anything like that. I was going out, getting on gear, selling gear, um, fighting, scrapping, and that kind of criminality, right? So I wasn't a career criminal. I wasn't uh, a hitman or anything like that. I was going out, getting absolutely off my face and then going out looking for her fights and coming coming back with broken jaws, torn gullets and slashed with knives and stuff like that. And I just thrived off it because from a young age, um, I had a bad relationship with my dad where I didn't feel loved by my dad. And due to that lack of significance and that lack of love, I kind of craved this need of something kind of had that need met by feeling powerful and feeling like 
bit of a crazy fuck. I, I liked people thinking I was crazy. I liked the notorious sort of stories that were going around about me, and they were nothing compared to some of the the people that you've uh, had on this podcast before, like our friend uh, Kevin. But you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've you know smashed bottles over people's heads and all sorts of things like that, and just gone jumped into crowds of like six or seven people wanting to wanting to fight. And I don't say that to make myself look like a big man, because I I really you know, don't respect that in myself at all anymore. Um, but that was who I was and that was my identity and that's what fed me um, both in my needs being met um, and also, you know, financially and selling Coke and, uh, you know, living that lifestyle with those kind of people. And that leads to jail and that leads to fights and that leads to insane things happening. You know, I had a, a suicide attempt once where I tried to slip both sides of my uh, neck scars there been sectioned under the mental health act I've had three different mental health diagnoses one of them at 18 was antisocial personality disorder which was a psychopath bipolar which they described me antipsychotics and emotionally unstable personality disorder which they which they diagnosed me with in prison so i was like this unhelped like this guy that couldn't be helped and i didn't believe that anybody could change let alone me if anyone was ever going to change it wasn't going to be me and what happened was i got i i was in a taxi queue but i know i jumped the front of a taxi queue uh, i was so drunk i didn't realize i'd done it and uh some guy started shouting in my face calling me names uh swung a punch missed missed him that drunk swung a punch again hit him he is head on the ground face first and it was just out cold and then i saw this slow dark thick trickle of like trickle of blood coming out of his head and i thought i'd killed him i put my hands up i was outside the train station watford junction then if you know it and uh i saw the camera i saw i banged to rights i stood there like this just waiting because i knew they had me um and they put me in the back of the car. They wouldn't tell me whether he was alive or dead. They they arrested me, put me back, put me in the in the cells. Next morning, still wouldn't tell me if he was alive or dead. Turned out he was in a three day coma, and he came out of that coma, and he was, as far as I'm aware, completely fine. I have never been able to make contact with him, although I have tried since. When I went to jail, I was immediately sentenced to. Um, they said they were going to give me three years for GBH, but they reduced it down to 18 months because I pleaded guilty at the scene. And you get a, uh, you get third off if you plead, plead guilty. But because I pleaded guilty at the scene, which is something quite unusual, it gave me half off, which is actually something I've never seen. So it was actually very lenient with me, considering I've been to prison twice already at this point. And I rang up my friend and I said, you know, from the jail phone, what are people saying about me on social media? Uh, he said, oh, you're on the front page of the paper. Oh, a few of them, actually. Violent, boorish, thug, gets sentenced to prison. Um, I was like, yeah, whatever. And then he said, oh, there's also a picture that your friend Charlie's posted. Two pictures. One of them is you the day you were sentenced outside the courtroom. And the other one was a day that you were sentenced outside the exact same courtroom seven years ago with a caption above, nothing changes and that for me hit it i was like charlie my best mate who's just as bad as me has just told me that nothing has changed in my life in seven years although i tried to make a few changes and by changes i mean maybe drink a pint in between a vodka or only only take coke on the weekend or <laughs> you know only have one fight a night <laughs> Um, I mean, I was stupid. I was reckless. You know, I was. Sometimes I'd go out and fight, and then I'd get my t-shirt ripped off, and then I'd go and find a homeless guy, and I'd buy his clothes off him to put back on to get back in the queue to get back in the club. Like insane behaviour, and that's why I got diagnosed with these mental health problems. But anyway, when when he said nothing changes, I realised that nothing had changed. Like I kept on doing the same things over and over again, and expecting a different result. And I realized for the first time in my life, although this is very obvious in hindsight, at the time it wasn't, that if I wanted my life to change, I needed to change. But I didn't even think change was possible because I've never seen it. You know, you grow up in the town that you're from and you know those people and you know what they're like. And it's difficult to see outside of that sometimes. It's only in more recent years 
as we were talking about before this podcast live, I uh, went live, that podcasts and social media didn't exist back in the day, right? You don't know an alternative. So if you're around these bunch of people that are all getting on gear and getting on fights and going to jail, then how, how can you, how can you see outside of that? But when I realized that I could change myself, I kind of just had this an awakening as cheesy as that sounds like a realization shit. I could change myself. I'm very impulsive and very addictive. So I've been addicted to drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, everything you can think of, everything you can name of. I'm addicted to it. Even now I'm addicted to business. Like I still have those traits, but I channeled them into more productive areas. Um, but I realized that if I channel this like impulsive side of me into changing my life, I could, I could improve it. And I started small and I started going into the maths and English departments in prison. I started to go to the RAPT program, which was the Rehabilitation of Addictive Prisoners Trust, which was about drugs and alcohol. I started going to the gym, started getting into a routine, started to think, you know, have a bit of breathing space to actually think about life and contemplate life. And do you know what? Something I say a lot, which people can't get their heads around, is prison is one of the most peaceful places I've ever been. Genuinely. Because when they lock them doors and you're you're secure, you've got nothing to you, you've got nothing to do, you've got nowhere to be, you've got no bills to pay, you've got no one to become, you've just gotta be and exist. And it gives you time to reflect and think upon what do you want for your life, you know? And it's when I was I know this is a very long answer, I'll give you time to uh, interject in a second. But it was when I was in the prison maths and English department, I started off functional skills one and two, which is the equivalent of a 10 year old. It's like before GCSEs. I um, first of all, went in there, screwed up, screwed up the paper. I said, I ain't doing this shit, even though I was the one that signed up for it. And uh, I had a lady called Susie who just sat down next to me and just said, what's the matter? And I said, I don't understand. And that really confused me when I said that because I sort of blurred it out. And then I thought, I haven't even tried to understand. So why have I said that? And I started to like question myself and she was supporting me. And then I realized that the relationship I had with my dad, he'd called me a buffoon and stupid so many times over and over again. I'd believe I believed it. And I thought I was. So I would assume that I didn't understand something and not even try. So she, this lady for the first time in my life asked me what the matter was and I actually gave her the answer I just don't understand and then it allowed me to start doing the maths in English and it's a crazy story actually I realized I was like really able so I was really good at the maths in English and I even memorized pi you know pi mm -hmm. 3.141592 all that's I memorized that to 500 decimal places and wrote it on the the whiteboard and I had all the all the prisoners come in and all the teachers come in and, it was, and I was like, realized my potential basically realized that, wow, there's, there's, there's more to me than I've ever, ever thought. And it was a progressive journey from there. She believed in me. I, I started to believe in myself and I set myself a goal to go to university. And then upon leaving prison, I was given the opportunity to go to rehab and this is six months, fully intensive, live-in rehabilitation, where it's like Big Brother. It's worse than prison, because prison, you just sit there and do your time. Rehab, it's 24 hours therapy, and they broke me down. So I went to that, and I did that, and they broke me down. And they got me to share my story. They got me to share my feelings. They got me to open up about everything that had ever happened to me, and I just blocked it all out since then. And I've uncovered serious traumas that I'm partially aware of, partially not aware of. Sexual abuse, one of being one of them, um, which still to this day doesn't doesn't seem real, but it but it is. Um, but acknowledging these stuff, and I started to work on these things, and I started to work on myself, and bit by bit, I became a better person. And uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to speak now because I've spoken for so long, but. It's, it was just a progressive journey from there, really, learning to believe in myself from somebody else and my own doing um, and getting myself clean and sober and seeing the progression and the potential I had. And obviously, there's the business side, which we, which we can go into in a bit. But that was a change. It was 
the realization that there, there, there was a possibility to change, which I genuinely didn't know existed. Yeah. I thought it was just like for people that weren't like me, you know, I didn't think people like me could change. Mm. But um, once I realized it was possible, I ran with it and I haven't looked back since. I know this is going to sound a bit cliche and corny, but it's so true is if you want the world to change, you've got to be that change first or become the the change you want to see in the world. You know, yeah. there's so many cliche yeah. sayings like that. And it is so freaking true. There isn't a magical answer out there. It's just be a better version of yourself and everything else will kind yeah. of, over time, fall into its place. I do want to touch on something you just said because I've got it written down here and I've only seen it written down a few times in some articles. So mm -hmm. just... For me to understand, I, I mean, by the way, I, I just sat sat back and listened to you because one, you're a very good speaker. Two, you've got a very good journey, and I can see you're a man on a mission, which I, I really admire, mate. So, so, so well, well Thanks, done on all those, all those fronts. Um, I'm intrigued to like find out why, like, you were kind of hateful to the world, and why you wanted to really, you know. You're addicted to like almost pain and violence, and just kind of fuck, mm. fucking yourself up. There, there is mm. a part in, in an article which said that you were sexually abused and you had a bad relationship with yeah. family members. Um, can you tell me a bit yeah. more about what you mean, what you, what it says yeah. in the paper about you being sexually yeah. abused? Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't sexually abused by my family. That was completely isolated incident. I had a very bad relationship with my dad. He would call me, he would punch me from time to time. Wasn't a massive, like every night he came in with a belt, but you know, it, it happened, but it was more the verbal psychological abuse of calling me a stupid buffoon, literally telling me I'm never going to amount to anything. And just always on my case, telling me that and make, and, and make me believe it. The sexual abuse came when I wasn't, my, my needs weren't getting met by, by my dad, which was love. And I actually found it through acting, singing and dancing. So I actually started to do things like plays and, uh, yeah, plays and stuff like that. Oliver and Bugsy Malone and all those sorts of things. They used to be, you know, you used to be able to enroll summer schools, things and that. And I went to a stagecoach and it was one of the older guys from there. Um, invited me back to his place, stupidly did thought he was a friend he wasn't much older than me and that's why it was very confusing like i must i was 11 he must have probably only been i must have probably thought he was 16 maybe he may have been older could have been 18 could have been 20 just don't know and i don't know how much of a thing that was i don't know if he was a pedophile i don't know if he was gay i don't know if he saw an opportunity i don't even know if he was in there to find someone all i know is when i was 11 i was around this guy's house and stuff unfolded that was beyond my control. I froze, you know, the flight, you know, the uh, flight, fright or freeze. I froze. Um, and yeah, that happened. And I buried it, completely buried it. I, I can't put that down to, um, to why I was so angry at the world. I think it was one of the things. It was this confirmation that I was bad. My dad told me I was bad. I got, a, I got an ASBO at 14. So the council told me I was bad. I was expelled from school at 15. So school tell me I'm bad. I was in the Young Offenders Institution at 18. So the p police and tell me I'm bad. Then I go for a psychiatric assessment as a part of a pre-sentence report. And they tell me I've got an antisocial personality disorder, which is a psychopath. So now I am fucking bad. And not only that, but I'm uncurable. That's what it says. So I like read it. I was like, oh, it, you cannot cure antisocial personality disorders. They will always be like that. You can maybe learn to manage their behavior, but they will always be cunning, violent, calculated. And there is this argument today, whether I am still that person. I often ask myself the question, am I still that person that has learned to control my behavior and steer that into a more positive way? But to go back and answer your question, why was I this just off the rails? Every, I've, I had this identity as being bad and stupid and a buffoon and I didn't see any way out. 
and and all these shit things kept on happening to me and it was my lifestyle it was kind of what i was brought up in although it's not my mum and dad weren't involved with drugs and fighting stuff that i was aware of anyway but because it was what my life was like it just felt normal it, it, it didn't feel fucking craziness when i look back on it and and go oh my god i can't believe i did that now but looking back i was well looking back i can say that at the time it was just a normal night out or it was just a it was just a i don't know just had a fucking different mind back then and i've changed it and i fixed it and uh it's channeled in the right areas now i've 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 unplugged some sockets and i've rewired them in the right places and and i've used certain attributes that didn't served me before like this because i've got a, a very emo uh, low emotional scale as well so i don't fear much uh don't feel much don't feel much fear though no. i i can make very strategic decisions very quickly so i have a lot of benefits um of this antisocial personality disorder that i used to be that i used to be labeled with as a negative that i've actually now channeled as a high functioning uh ceo so there is this question of was i a psychopath was i labeled a psychopath did i cure my psychopathy or have i rechanneled my behavior into a different area mm. there's some question marks against my name which is why i think i'm quite a controversial one yeah and it hits papers i um i i i honestly like agree with entrepreneurs higher performing athletes and like people taking drugs or alcohol they're all they're all linked it's just some of it is really bad and some of it is really good if you can channel your addiction let's say you're addicted to alcohol and you can now channel that addiction going down the boxing gym and training mm. all the time you get the same feel good factor but one is really good for you and one of them is 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 not so good yeah. um look i'm i'm a curious guy lewis and you oh, and, and i'm an open book and i'm an open book i'm looking at you now right and i've done research on you you're a very successful man you're quote unquote a, a, a millionaire you live in a great life you've been in forbes you've got two hundred forty thousand people following you on instagram alone and you're verified you've got tattoos you're a tough guy you know you know you got you got not tough you, anymore you, you, you got all the kind of the profiles of a very successful and someone that doesn't take any shit but i've got the same man in front of me right now saying you're essentially sexually abused by another fella and it just doesn't sit in my mind like how 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 on earth can that happen so are you saying to me that you were basically raped by another guy no it wasn't it wasn't that far so it was everything but that I'll put, I don't want to go into details, but it was everything but that. And, and it's weird because I was 11. So this was pre me getting into trouble. So this, I was a kid, you know, this was before I even reached full puberty. Like I was a small little child at this point. Yeah. Right. Before it was before I even went to secondary school. So I'm talking, we're talking year six kind of child before, um, the, you know, the man that you're sitting in front of today. Um, of, of course would have would have had a very different scenario should it have happened today rather than when i was 11 but um yeah it's a weird scenario in which i i kind of froze and the reason why i never really identified it as sexual abuse is because in a weird way somehow i got caught up in contributing towards it i've never actually admitted that to anybody live i've admitted it to therapists and stuff but somehow and I've heard this from other victims of rape, sexual abuse and stuff like that. They, at some point they, they, they accept it, you know, and they're like, this is happening. So I found myself at one point during that scenario, although for the first 10 minutes, I'm literally like a brick stiff stuck on with some guy on top of me. Like what the fuck, what the fuck some point through that process, something shift. And I started to engage and, do it with him so that made me that made it feel like i guess a little bit like i was to blame or it wasn't actually sexual abuse it was just this like i don't know thing that i did when i was 11 
I buried it, mate. Buried it for years. It didn't come out to rehab. Um, but all these things that stuffed in the back of your head. I remember when I was in um, in the rap program uh, that I spoke to you about in prison. And um, I remember I was, said, miss, 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 miss. What do you do if you've got loads of problems, but you don't know what they are? That's what I said, because I knew that I had shit. I knew it was there, but I just couldn't. I, I didn't have the awareness around it. It was like buried in my subconscious. Um, loads of shit happened to me at this point. I walked in and found my dad dead. I'd been verbally and physically and psychologically abused, you know, from from for years by my dad, you know. Um, and I, I kind of just didn't see it, recognize it, acknowledge it, process it, do any of the things that uh, a normal, natural human should do. And I just cut it all off, completely cut it all off. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, mate, if, if it happened now, it would have been very different. But at the time, I was a very vulnerable child. And uh, I I don't know how it happened, but it did. And I'm sure there's many other people um, that have been through similar scenarios that could probably say the same thing. Like, I don't know how I got myself in that situation, but it happened, you know. And they're obviously very clever in the way that they go about their tactics i should imagine mm. um i've been around it as well where you know being from south london i'm originally from Tulsill, moved out to to kent uh, but my business life and social life a lot of the time has been in and around london um and also myself you know fighting when i was younger going to croydon um and and having a fight on thursday night or whatever it was kind of the the done thing it was almost like if you mm. don't go out and get drunk and then have some kind of altercation with someone you've had a shit night it's almost like you're not a real man <laughs> you're not you're not a real man unless yeah, you do yeah, it yeah. even though people did say that yeah, you, yeah. you kind of got that vibe that's that's how you did it yeah. so i totally resonate with what you're saying T talk to me about the drinking and the drugs how much cocaine was yeah. you doing how much alcohol was a you lot. consuming yeah, it was a lot. It got to the point where the nightclub started to phase out and the sitting in someone's flat for three days in a row was starting to fade in, you know, and it became like three or four days in a row without eating or drinking any type of water and just drinking alcohol and taking coke for three or four days. Like four days was the most I'd ever done. Three days, quite common. Two days was like the minimum. I couldn't bear anything less it was like it was when my body was shutting down is when i would stop you know when i would start to see flashes of like white light because my body is shutting down because i've because because i was numbing myself like i remember the day that my that i walked in and found my dad dead like that night i was out like on the gear and i was just numbing the pain i i didn't understand um but it got bad it got i was still in coke as well so i was endless supplies um drinking bottles of vodka like it must have been, must have drunk six bottles of vodka during one session with no water you know like over the period of a few days but it's just constant drinking and constant coke and we're talking i don't know who knows 10 20 grams i would say probably each it's just a pile and it's just just fucking going at it and it's it didn't start like that it started off as one you know but then it started to get dirtier and dirtier and more and more and then i moved abroad um and did a season uh in magaluf and ironapa and fucking hell man was i, I was known as the craziest and wildest one out of those people and you know how crazy and wild they are right and i was having fights with the math i swear to god you can ask anybody i've actually had a documentary filmed about me recently and I've had old mates come in and say this without me having a word said to them. I used to have, I used to have fights with a mafia. I remember I had a fight with the biggest drug dealer in Cyprus. Like I was on a death wish. Like the people that I knew would hurt me, I would, I would go up to them and try and fight them. It's just like self-sabotage times a million. Like I wanted to be hurt, you know, and I remember one night I broke down and started crying, speaking to this girl, like, I just want to die. I just want to die. I didn't even know where it was coming from. And I just numbed it so, so well. Um, and it was just coming out through this aggression and it took years of therapy to figure it all out and untangle it all. And, 
and now I'm the man that you see today. <laughs> Is, was there ever a time when you were doing like the drink and the drugs and on the sessions that you felt you was going to die? Yeah, oh, mate, mate, I've, uh, I've, well, I've tried to commit suicide at one point, so I slashed my throat and I clipped an artery and I was, yeah, I was close there. Um, but I've been, I've overdosed loads of times, like loads of times. And and you can't even technically overdose on coke, but I woke up in the morning with fucking stickers of ECG on the back of my head and not even remember going to hospital, um, in and out of hospital all the time. The worst time was when I got, I had a fight twice in a row. So I had a fight in a pub with, with, and actually got the shit kicked out of me for the first time in my local area in a long time. I had a good reputation before that, but like got the shit kicked out of me by this bloke. And then got up, apparently they saw it on the camera, me sort of got up and then went to this other guy's house, knocked on the front door, and he was a professional boxer or a semi-professional. I think we probably called him a professional boxer. Probably wasn't actually at the time. And he punched me and broke my jaw in two places. And my jaw was literally out here. Went back, ordered another two grams of Coke, started getting back on it. And I started to shriek like this. And everyone was like, Lewis, mate, you've got to go to hospital. Your fucking jaw's hanging off. And um, then I, they, they put a plate in my jaw, fixed it all up. And then two days later, um, my chest started to swell up and my voice changed. And this was on another session. I was straight back on it. And I was like, why am I sounding so weird? And, and my chest was swelling. And then I was sick. And then I was, I can't remember what happened exactly, but I knew something was seriously wrong. So they called an ambulance. And what, I'd, what I had was surgical emphysema, which was, and they still to this day don't know how it happened, whether it was me being sick so much from um, just doing too much drugs and alcohol. So I used to like vomit violently sometimes and burst my gullet. That was one of the things they thought could have happened. The other thing that happened was it was like a, a later complication of the jaw broke broken or the the main reason they think they think it was when they put the tube down my throat to fix my jaw they nipped my gullet and it opened up air but what happened was what it was doing was it was putting air around my lungs and my heart and they said if that continues to expand it will put more and more pressure on your heart and your lungs until you die so this so they said like you know in certain terms you're in real trouble um, they said, we've got to do an operation. We're going to have to put a tube in your, in your neck, a tube in your bowel, a tube in your stomach, basically so that your, your gullet can heal. Otherwise, if it gets infected, you're, you're a goner. And they said, you've got around, I said, like, give me my chances. Like, what are my chances of survival? They said, you got about 30% chances of survival from the operation. Um, and they said, call your family, let them, let them know basically basically saying let them know you might not come out of this operation but what was strange is though is when i was lying down on the table they said to me you don't care do you they said your heart rate is completely normal completely stable and i just didn't give a fuck didn't care and and then i woke up and i had doctors all around me and this sounds like fairy tales which is why my story's in the papers because i've got some good stories they're all fucking real sometimes i think i'm making it up but i had the doctors all around me and they said you had us all amazed they said, we put the camera down your throat to do the operation and it had closed and healed itself. Like it was basically like a little nick, a little nick that was letting air in and that air would have killed me eventually. But the the, the gullet closed and all I now needed was just two two weeks in on an intravenous trip for, to make sure I don't get an infection and I was, I, was a, I was a free man. But I said to myself during that time, if I get out of this alive, mum, wish my mum come now. So if, if I get out of this alive, I'm going to go travel the world. <laughs> and that was what sent me off to Ayanapa uh, and Magaluf. I think I took traveling the world a little bit in the wrong direction. But yeah, that was the closest I ever got. And and then later when I spoke to the consultant, I said he said, you were very lucky. So I didn't want to say at the time, but I said he said it wasn't 30, it was 50-50 that you was going to make it in that operation. Wow. So thank fuck I didn't have that operation because they said that if I had the operation, which was a good outcome, I'd have been in, in intensive care for six months because of all the fucking crazy. tubes in my bowel and tubes. So, yeah, some 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 crazy war stories, but I don't really tell them because I'm not because now I'm sort of I don't know I'm just feeding into it. I don't don't often 
because I can tell it's it's weird. You pull out a different energy in me. I can sense your energy. It's it's pulling me it's pulling me in. Mm. I don't really talk about this sort of stuff though because I I'm not. I used to be proud of it. You know, I used to you know you know, you know that guy's oh yeah I fucking knocked him out and then the other guy yeah. That's not me anymore. Like I, I, I am embarrassed by those things I used to do, and I don't like telling more stories. I'm not the sort of guy that's down the pub going, "Oh yeah, back in my day, this one time." So I'm giving it to you as a special treat. But this is this isn't uh, what I usually talk about on <laughs> podcasts. I, um, I, I, I can tell that you are in a in a completely different place to the person I've read about in, in in the papers, and I know that you're driven. I know you're positive, and I know you've got so much going for you. And I, I, I feel not bad asking you these questions, but I, I understand there's a paradox there, you know, between these are real stories. You did live it, and it's interesting for the viewers to hear it because one, they're just yeah, they're, man, go they're, for it. They're, Honestly, they're gripping stories, but two. There are people that are going to live a very similar to life that, that you live once before and they don't see a way mm. out. They're like, how the fuck can I turn my mm. life around? And you're a, mm. a great example of that. So let, let me mm. bring you back to slicing your throat. I know it's going to sound a mm. bit like a stupid question and the viewers may say to me, mm. why the hell have you asked such a dumb question? But why did yeah. you try and kill yourself? Oh mate, this is the most psycho thing I can ever done, and I, and I know why I've been diagnosed with these these uh, mental health conditions is because I was mentally ill. I don't know if I cured it or a miracle occurred or I ever had them in the first place, but I can understand why I was given those labels. What happened was I was in my first relationship, and I've had trauma that I've just told you about. But this was a one-year relationship when I was seventeen. Uh, might have turned eighteen by this point. 17, 18, and it was a breakup. And still to this day, that was the most painful thing I've ever been through. I don't know what she done to me, but that first love and that first heartbreak, it fucking shattered me. And we was having an argument one night, was being each other for a year, and a year relationship at 17 years old is, is quite a long time. And we had an argument, and she turned around, and she just said to me, well, you know what? I cheated on you. And within one second, I, f I felt the immediate loss of her because I was like, she's done that. We, are, we can never be together. So she was ripped away from me and it felt so painful. But then for some reason, it reminded me of my family who would, at, when I was about, fuck knows how old I was, 15 or 16, they ring-fenced me from the family. They said, you're affecting your younger brother, because I've got a brother that's five years younger. Said, you're affecting the family too much. We get a ring-fence you. essentially cut you off. Not financially. They didn't ever give me any money anyway. But what they meant is they weren't going to, I weren't going to be part of the family anymore. You're not going to get dinner. You come in, you go to your room, and they rejected me. Hardcore. Which is enough for someone to deal with anyway. But when, but when she told me she cheated at me, Somehow, in one second, I felt that and that at the same time. And every confirmation that I was bad, because she kind of, when I got with her, I kind of thought, oh, you know, maybe I'm actually all right. Maybe I am actually lovable. Maybe I'm not this bad, like, guy who's incapable of, you know, being decent to anybody. And at this point, you know, things were starting to get bad with drink and things like that. And then when she did that to me, it just fucking ripped my heart out. Absolutely ripped my heart out. And I went psycho, saw red, like, you know, the cliche saw red, literally saw red, blacked out. I uh, don't remember it. Mm, do I remember it? Yeah, no, I must remember it. Either that or I'm remembering it from what they recounted in, like, court and stuff like that, because it got a bit messy with <laughs> restraining all this stuff up. But anyway, I smashed her kitchen up, her mum's kitchen. I pulled out a, draw a kitchen drawer. And as the kitchen drawer fell on the floor, I saw a six-inch kitchen knife. And I just picked it up and just went... In a second. Like fucking Wolverine. I don't even know. It was, literally just, it was in a second. I don't even know how I did it. And I'd clipped... Because the, the, the scar's still there now. Like, uh, I, I'd clipped an artery and, you know, spurt my blood. So ambulance is called. I start fighting the paramedics. <laughs> this is how I say that. I start fighting the paramedics. Then the police are called. They arrest me. 
they take me to the hospital they pin me down they stitch my neck up literally stitched it because it was obviously not with the fucking butterfly stitches with with needle and thread or whatever because they literally cut through almost an artery um was literally a millimeter away from from that being you know complete gonna and what happened was i was such a psycho i ripped out all the ivs all all the all the stuff and i fucking ran up to her house and can you imagine me knocking on her door blood absolutely everywhere with fucking needles hanging out my arm and the prison gown on and just i had nothing to say when she answered the door as well <laughs> so, so she, i'm just not gonna do it she's answered and i'm just there and the police arrested me. They, they they sectioned me under the Mental Health Act and they took me to St. Albans Mental Health, St. Uh, Albany Lodge. Um, fucking crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, so these stories, sometimes I just drop them in like, oh, yeah, I tried to commit suicide once. Oh, I got sexually abused. You know, When you really dive into them, it's like, fuck. <laughs> Some crazy stuff that went on. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of unbelievable, which is why my story is so obviously fascinating to a lot of people because I have done a complete turnaround. I've gone from a fucking lunatic to a very successful, high functioning, well-rounded individual. And it is kind of like, how, how the fuck? And part of me thinks that myself, but I think I just was lucky enough to just get on that trajectory, you know, and started to do the, the next best thing that could improve my life. And I, I actually had to do voluntary work uh, with my probation and then I started helping people and I started to like, kind of enjoy it I started to do drugs and al drug and alcohol meetings and things like that and connecting in with those communities and different groups of people and when I left rehab they took me to rehab in Portsmouth this is by the sea I, I was uh, brought up in Watford just outside North London so it's a completely different energy down there everyone's different i was i was able to have a fresh start not many people get given the opportunity to have a fresh start you know i was given uh housing benefit to get myself flat i was given employment support allowance to give me some money even start a part-time job in gant folding clothes i went back to college and did an access course that got me into uni i just fully embraced the resources that were available to me the whole time um um had this opportunity of a fresh start and i've just kept on taking one step after the next and not one step but fucking giant leaps as much as i can and i just haven't stopped for seven years mm. and yeah yeah amazing. now now i'm this you know quote unquote like you said because it's not quite multi-millionaire. I'll actually admit that. You know, it's not in cash; it's in assets. It's the uh, value of the business. Yeah. Cash millionaires another has another scenario. We'll move on to that one soon. I could, I could be if I wanted to. If I wanted to sell out some of my shares, I could. But why would I want to do that when they're growing so quick? Yeah. Um. But um. Yeah. I mean, those were some of the crazy times. Um. And I, I feel like I need to ask you this question. So, you, you know, the old Lewis Raymond Taylor obviously went through all this craziness, tried to kill yourself, obviously been in prison, yeah, etc. Yeah. Did you ever try to kill somebody else? I never try and kill someone. I've never been asked that question before. Um, I've never had the intention to kill someone, but I've never ever th thought about the line that I have to draw between them not dying. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't go in here and go, I'm going to take this to this level. I always go in there. I never use knives or anything like that. So I didn't really have an opportunity. Knives and guns weren't what I was about. So I couldn't make that decision in the snapshot. But if I'm going in there to fight, I'm going in there to to do some damage. Mm. And I've done some serious damage to people. Yeah. And, and bar that, that one where you knock the guy out, you know, the trickle red deep blood coming from his head, you thought you mm -hmm. killed him. Is there yeah. any other uh, incidences or fights that you had where you looked and you thought, I've yeah. really done some bad damage to that person? Yeah, at one point I was actually on trial for, I don't know what, what might incriminate me, but I was on trial for four GBHs at once. Once was, because um, yeah, I, I bottled, oh, 
Oh, fuck. I don't, I don't think they can do me for it now. Anyway, there, okay, there was an accusation that I bottled somebody, um, and, and that was a GBH, and that was one isolated incident. But there was also a, an incident where I had a fight with three people, and the accusation was I knocked their, broke their jaw, cheekbone, and nose, and knocked 11 of their teeth out. And I had four GBHs. And um, luckily, I had a good lawyer that got that dropped down to one GBH, four ABH, no, two ABH and a fray. Um, due to certain circumstances. But those guys, I, I was with my friend. It was two of us and three of them. And he started crying because of how over the top I went. You know, when you're on top of someone mm. and you're just pummeling them, that's what I was doing. And I wouldn't stop. Actually, there might have been four, but I think only three of them I got convicted of. But I said, bas basically, this it sounds like a war story again, doesn't it? But I was like, I'm not stopping until they're all knocked out on the floor around me. And he was crying at this point, like what he'd seen. And I'd looked around me. And they was all knocked out in a fucking circle around me. And I was like, right now we can go. I was a fucking, I was dangerous. I was dangerous. And it's because I had this antisocial personality disorder, completely emotionless. Like I didn't care whether they died or not. Um, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know whether that comes from a nature or a nurture point of view is that I was born with a lack of empathy and remorse for people or was I severely traumatized from a young age and wasn't and wasn't and had didn't have my emotions developed um and nurtured by my family in the way that they should to the point where it created someone that were that could do things like that. Mm. Um but yeah there was that scenario and there was many others. Do you know um, and many others many many other un unknowns as well. Like sometimes I do think like what happened to that guy? Yeah. yeah. I, um, my next question, but you've taken, you've actually answered it before I even asked you, is, is about the remorse. And I'm not here, mm. to, I'm not here as a podcaster pointing a finger at you and going, you're a bad man, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But as a podcaster, I've got to kind of ask these questions that I th feel that the audience probably want to know. So not back then, but kind of now, do you ever think about, the drug dealing, you know, selling drugs to people and they might now be addicted. Some of them might have died and it might have ruined their family, their businesses and also the fights that you had. There are people now probably still have emotional, mental damage because of the fights and the pain that you inflicted. Do you ever look back now as this professional person think, oh my God, I've got massive guilt and remorse for what I did back then. And it's because it is what it is. I just don't feel it. Fair enough. I've just got to be truthful. I've got to be honest. It's just not there, mate. It never has. Um, and the question I'm trying to explore with various somatic healers and shamanic workers and all these crazy embodiment coaches and breath workers and stuff out here in Bali is different ways to access different parts of myself. And I logically have remorse. I can look at a scenario and go, that was bad. I shouldn't have done that. There would have been implications. I wish I didn't do that. I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about a feeling, I actually really don't feel anything. Not much. It takes, it takes a lot for me to feel much. Um, it takes a lot for me to feel something. Mm. Because of the trauma or because of the psychopathy, or so, however you pronounce it, you know, that could have been a correct diagnosis, you know, the antisocial personality disorder, even to this day, right? I display those traits. I can sack someone like that if they're underperforming, you know, if, if there's a decision that needs to be made in the business and it's an, it, it affects people and it's, a, it's an emotional one, I can strategically look at it and logically calculate it and make that decision immediately, you know, so, I, I want to back myself up because I don't want to come across as a cold-hearted, callous, evil person because that's not what I am. Like, I do have an element of remorse and 
regret for those things. But I can't lie and say that I feel it because I just haven't ever learned to express my emotions. Mm. And I've uh, I've, I've dived into various forms of therapy and it takes something very significant for me to feel, for me to feel it. So I do everything on a logical basis. Like even love to me is logical. Like I understand love. I know this means that, and this means this. And if she, she does that for me and does this, this means that, and this means she loves me, you know, it's just different. It's just, I, I see, I, 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 I experience things differently to a lot of people, I think. Mm. <clears throat> the, the drinking drugs in, um, how long ago was it, uh, since you got clean? Interesting question. Um, I was five years clean. Um, thought to myself, could I? Could I have a drink? You know, it goes, it, it went through my mind only for that last year. First four years, I was like, I'm just sober now for life. But then it started to creep in. Actually, maybe I could have a social drink. And I started to have a couple of social drinks and I started to get away with it. As in, had a few and actually didn't go fucking loopy. Um, and then we recently uh, opened up a restaurant in Bali uh, for coaches called Cafe Coach. And we opened up the the night part of it, which was the re- restaurant and the cocktails. And there was a party and I got really drunk and ended up having a seizure. And the seizure was so bad that I went blue, stopped breathing, had a cardiac arrest, and my fiance had to do CPR on me until I came back to life. And then since then, my memory's been a bit sh- like shut in places. I can't quite remember. Like Some short-term memory issues are... It's getting better, but yeah, I've lost a, a bit of short-term memory. Um, and that was that was only like a few months ago. <clears throat> it feels like a few months ago. It might have been like six months ago. <laughs> and uh, was, <laughs> it, the short... was it just the, the drink or did the drugs come yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. No, the drugs didn't come out. It was just a drink. But I, I, I think I must have went past my threshold. Um, and my body just wasn't used to it. I used to have seizures before as well. By the way, I forgot to mention that. I was having seizures before, but I just didn't think anything of it. I was like, whatever, seizures. You know? um, but now I know that they can kill you. And you can actually have, there's something called sudet, which is sudden unexplained death by, by uh, epilepsy, where you can just die in your sleep. So, um, yeah, now I'm back to being clean and sober and I have been for the last six months or whatever. It's really don't know when it was, to be honest, but, um, yeah, full sobriety again, I did try and dabble and I must admit that, but, uh, it didn't work. And I heard all the stories about it not working, but I think you have to figure that one out for yourself. Yeah. So, okay. Like now you're on this path of like. You know, you mentioned, I don't know if I can mention this, but you said to me, you're going to start your own podcast. Obviously, you've got a great, yeah, yeah. Uh, great online presence. You've got plenty of articles about you. You've got this great business. Talk to me about like daily routines now, like the gym. Mm-hmm. How much of a factor is that? Personal development. How much of a factor is that? Recovery, stretching, eating the right things. Like, talk to me about a day in a life of uh, Lewis mm. Raymond Taylor and what you do to become successful. That's not me anymore. I went through that stage of doing the 5 a.m. morning routine, hitting the gym, clean foods. I've done on and off. I'm no expert when it comes to that. You know, I don't claim to be like a peak performance expert. I don't even claim to be a life coach. I know how to change people's mind, but... My performance and my my routine and, and the things that I do aren't particularly impressive. And I do do the typical yo-yo uh, dieting and yo-yo gymming that a lot of people do. You know, sometimes I hit it, smash it every day or five days a week for six months. And then sometimes I don't do anything for six months. I'm obsessed with work. I say that. I'm a work addict. So it's the first thing I think about and it's the last thing I think about. When I'm with my wife, Diana, we got married in Barcelona a couple of months ago. Congratulations. Uh, she, thank you. She uh, she balances me out and um, I'm able to function uh, better. But when she's not there, I slip into my addiction, which is to work. And sometimes I can wake up and I can open my laptop and I can work until I fall asleep with just free deliveries of breakfast, lunch and dinner on delivery. 
that can be my life. I, I can't lie to you. I go through periods. It depends where you're at in your life right now. Um, actually, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm ready for an optimized part of my life. I've just hired, rehired a sleep coach. I've had a, a sleep coach before, just rehired them. I still do loads of different personal development things from time to time, do breath work, um, trying out new things. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I live a relatively healthy lifestyle-ish, you know, of course I slip up, but yeah, I'm no, I'm no, um, I'm no angel, you know, I can eat the bad foods, I can slip off the gym. Um, I'm not one of those life coaches. I'm a, I'm a coach trainer and I know how to change people's brain and how to break down limiting beliefs and how to shift perspective. I know, how to, I know how to make you see things in a different way, but I'm not someone that's going to tell you to get up at 5am and, and have a cold shower and fucking you know, eat your five a day. Um, I just work as hard as I fucking can to move the business forward in whatever high level thing that is that day. I look at my list of things to do and I'm like, what is the most high level thing I can do to take our business to the next step today that I could possibly use today? And I just do that. Mm. Um, and that's it. If I became a client of yours today, Mm -hmm. talk to me about what I would experience, what I would get, what would happen. I'm curious uh, to, to yeah. sort of live vicariously mm. through a client dealing with your yeah, brand. Yeah. Well, I don't, I started off as a life coach. This was five, six years ago. And then I very quickly realized that I was changing lives very rapidly, getting great results. And I started a coaching academy where I trained coaches. So my bread and butter and what I'm good at is training other people to be able to be coaches. So I don't take on personal clients that I haven't done for years, really, apart from the odd one or two passion project I might get from time to time. And that's usually to scale their coaching business. It's usually to make more money. Um, I haven't taken on a life coaching client for, yeah, five years. So um, I wouldn't better tell you at what, what level I could help somebody at at that stage because I haven't done it for a long time, but I know I could take a business and I could see it for all its component parts. And I could see every single stage of how you grow it. And I could see it mapped out in a blueprint and I could give you every step of the way. I know I can do that. I've got this logical brain, you know, you know, you know, I said, I've got no emotions, right. Or low emotions. I'm like a blind person, but I can hear much better. Like because my emotions are switched off, my logical brain is much more active. I can see things in front of me. Like I said, I memorized pi to 500 decimal places. I can see a business like a, a, a machine and I can see every cog and everything that's broken, everything that needs fixing. Um, so yeah, if you needed to grow your business, I could help you. I'll be good at that now. Good stuff. So um, what like what is kind of neck for you there, mate? Because you're living in Bali, mm -hmm. you've got a very successful yep. brand. What are your goals yeah. and aspirations over the next five or 10 years, mate? Yeah, so I'm moving into the metaverse now. We've got um, an app on the Oculus where people can learn in the online virtual environment, which is where I believe the future is going. Mark Zuckerberg's got 10,000 developers building out the metaverse right now. He's changed his name to Meta and taken a huge financial hit. I don't think he'd be doing that for no reason. I think there's something very, very big coming, and I don't think we'll anticipate it until it's here but I'm getting ahead of the curve on that. Um, we're also mo moving into mainstream private education. Um, I've seen lots of gaps in the syllabus of education that don't support uh, well-being, entrepreneurship, um, critical thinking skills, personal development mindset. Uh, and I'd actually like to move into creating a private school. You know, we're a coaching academy now. Um, but that will diversify into personal training. That will diversify into hypnotherapy. It won't be me as a trainer. It will be somebody else um, as a platform that you can do on your app, you can do on your laptop, or you can do on the Oculus. And that will broaden out and broaden out until it becomes a private school. And I want to create the world's first online virtual school that teaches kids the things they need to thrive in the 21st century. The shit that we... The shit that we know now, if we knew then, we wouldn't have been going out and, you know, taking coke and fighting people because we thought that was how to get through life. So that's my big and bold visionary sort of mission. 
And in the meantime, I'd love to um, settle down, stop being so nomadic and uh, build up a base in the States with my wife, where she's from, and have some kids. Um, and just continue to actually, I've only just recently started to build my personal brand back. Like I, I started my personal brand, went and built my business down, but coming back into my brand, built a new website and stuff like that. Um, so I want to do more inspiring you know I, I felt a bit detached from the helping people bit for a long time because i've become a ceo of a company and it was regard it was irrelevant what the product was it was like i was hiring and firing and making decisions and creating a job for myself so i'm looking forward to doing more podcasts interviewing more people doing more public speaking um i can mention this now yes i can when are you wearing this this is going to come out in in January. Okay. I have just been given a book deal by Penguin Random House, the largest book publisher in the world. So nice. that would be cool. So I better write a book. Um, and I've also had a full documentary um, recorded, and I'm just working on the editorial part of it now. Um, and, of course, the connections to get it, but I want to get it on Netflix. So the goal for next year is to launch the book, get the Netflix documentary out um, and uh, yeah, have the business on Oculus uh, and diversifying into many other education, uh, many other education industries that need our help. Excellent stuff. Um, one more kind of question I want to ask you and I'm just curious. I've been to Bali, lovely place. Yep. Why on earth out of all places around the world have you moved to Bali? When did you go to Bali? Seven years ago. Yeah, that's nothing like what it's like now. Now, it's got better restaurants than there are in central London. It's got beautiful coffee shops, lovely beach bars, beautiful everything in it, beautiful hotels. It's cheaper. The barrier to entry is much higher in terms of people. So, like, you have to have your own online business to actually be there. So, everybody you meet is entrepreneurial and successful or is an influencer or a travel blogger or something. So, you know, you're not meeting your common folk anymore. Um, and I just think it's got the perfect balance of Western culture that's been brought in and this, you know, Southeast Asia chilled out vibe that you can snap back in and out of. You could go to a shamanic mushroom ceremony in the middle of the fucking jungle one week and then the next week be in a, you know, a business mastermind you know so it's got a bit of everything and it's evolved massively over the last three years let alone seven it used to be a shack where people surfed now it's a digital nomad hotspot we got we that's why we open cafe coach out there so it's a cafe for coaches and we do workshops in there and training and also food and drink and stuff like that but uh yeah it's full because so many people live in that freedom-based lifestyle now. And uh, why do it in a cold country that's expensive? I think a uh, warm country that's cheaper, that has a bit of everything, is uh, why it works for me. But saying that, I'm moving out soon because the missus wants to be closer to her family. So I'm going to be getting a visa and getting myself into Miami at some point. But it's uh, hard work with a criminal record, they say. Yeah, uh, 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 great stuff on on like uh, you know taking the leap of faith and moving over to Bali now over potentially to America. Um, yeah, cat poo coffee. I swear, come from Bali. There's a cat, a wild cat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've drunk it. Yeah, I I had it, and I don't know why. When you were talking about Bali, then I just remembered I've actually drunk. So, are you a coffee drinker? Yeah, I've got cafe. What do you expect? Oh uh, yeah. So have you have you <laughs> have you tasted and drunk the cat poo coffee? Yes. What do you think of it? The, the cappuccino they call it. Don't they? <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was all right. And they show you how they make it, didn't they? They show you the cat poo and they dry it, and then they yeah yeah. yeah it was all right. Other than you know, I drink it every day. Yeah, but uh, it's the most expensive coffee in the world. Apparently, I think when they have it in America, it's like a hundred dollars uh, per per cup. And again, it's just like a what? yeah, it's just like a fad oh, thing. It's not um, yeah, in, in 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 Bali, you can buy a pack of it for twenty quid. Yeah, I know, I know. It's just um, a gimmicky thing, you know. But pe people yeah. buy it. Yeah. Uh, last thing as well, actually, uh, you mentioned about 
going off into like the wilderness with like mm-hmm. what do you call it? Sh- have you ever shamanic d- mushroom? That's it. Yeah. Have you ever done ayahuasca? Is it called? I haven't done ayahuasca, but I've done mushrooms and I've done peyote, which is um, cactus plant medicine. And um, what was that like? The peyote, I was very conflicted because I saw it as drugs and I was very resistant and I bailed in the end and bottled it. Uh, mushrooms, first time, I didn't have a good experience because I resisted it and fought it because I've been taught I've been taught and trained by AA to drugs and alcohol leads to jails, institutions and death. That's what they say. Um, so it was very hard to allow that experience in. The second time, I just surrendered. And it's, yeah, I've had some, I've had some like connections with ancestors and, you know, see myself in a completely different light. And yeah, I've had some profound experiences on mushrooms, but they're they're quite short lived. Like you have this really sharp burst of experience and then you kind of snap back into reality. And ayahuasca is the, uh, the famous one that you go up in Peru and the mountains and things like, I would like to do it. Um, it's quite dangerous to do it though, because it can fuck your head up. I know a few people that have gone too far with some of these things, and they you can't go back. They've seen things that they can't unsee. They now know reality for what it is, and and what it isn't. And they, for example, one guy said he he was on a trip, and he realised that the whole existence of the earth wasn't real, and he saw it for what it actually was. And then he found it really difficult living in this fake world. So it's dangerous to play around with those things. Um, it can also bring on seizures. So I've got to be careful of that. But I would like to do ayahuasca one day because I've also heard, for example, Vision from Mind Valley, $100 million business, very successful CEO, believes in psychedelics and is a big believer in ayahuasca. Steve Jobs also was into a lot of acid and stuff like that uh, that was written in his biography that I read. So, um, I'm open to those things. That that gentleman you just mentioned before, Steve Jobs, after this uh, call, could you just WhatsApp me his name? Because um, I'm really intrigued by all that sort of stuff as well. Right, I'm going to let okay. you go after this last question. When I first come up yeah. with my uh, first brand when I was like 24, 25 years of age, it was a sales company. And 90% okay. of those people on that sales floor were predominantly men, even higher, 95, 96, 97%. Alpha male type people, these are the type of people also that had their own vices, and I had to try and keep them on a winning streak, and I come up with a mantra, and the mantra goes like this, Lewis, be happy, never content. If I were to ask Lewis Raymond Taylor, your version, your perception of what does that mean, be happy, Never content. Mm. Well, it means to always strive and want more, but don't allow yourself to get caught up in not appreciating what you've currently got, you know, because otherwise you're on this never ending ladder uh, and you never, never reach the top and never receive any of the rewards from it. So it's about acknowledging, understanding, um, you know, the wins that you've had, the success you've had, and feel it, appreciate it, show gratitude for it, but don't allow that to for you to become complacent and still strive and push for the next one. Excellent stuff. Is that about right? Yeah, <laughs> wicked. Thank you for your time, mate. I'm really looking forward to getting this one out there. Um, and to all the subscribers, please uh, keep on following, sharing it and liking all that good stuff. And be happy, never content. Thank you very much, Lewis. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate it. See and, you later. And I uh, hope to see you soon in London. Mm-hmm.